Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. I'm your host, Dr. Jack West. I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. Greg Riley, who is the Vice Chair of Clinical Research in the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. He specializes in treating patients with lung cancer and thymic tumors, including thymoma and thymic carcinoma, and his research focuses on the treatment of patients with thymic tumors as well as non-small cell lung cancer with specific driver mutations, which are a growing collection at this point. So, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time. Happy to be here, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with the issue that has really turned the world upside down in most places, but certainly in New York, and that is coronavirus and COVID-19. Obviously, it's hopefully more of a threat and a concern than an active ongoing issue in most people with lung cancer. But you're in the eye of the storm in New York, and I'd really like to get a sense of how it has affected how you practice. Are you switching to mostly telemedicine? Is telemedicine, uh, you know, just alongside live visits? And and how much has the threat of coronavirus slammed on the brakes for workup of potential cancer and how you're actually treating folks? I think this has been an extraordinarily interesting time to be a doctor in New York City, that's for sure. I think that COVID-19 has hit New York as hard as, as anywhere. And, you know, being here in the middle of it has, has provided a real window on, on how this can affect people. And I think you alluded to, but I think the thing that always needs to come uh, really at the top here is that our patients with lung cancer are, are just as afraid of COVID-19 as anybody else, maybe more afraid. But they all have the very real problem of lung cancer uh, that they have to really balance and, and continuing to get care for their lung cancer. And as you also mentioned, people who are being evaluated for a potential diagnosis of lung cancer, how do we help those people in the best way possible? You know, in terms of how we have dealt with it here at, at MSK, you know, we have followed the, the New York State and the CDC guidelines to significantly reduce the number of elective procedures we do. Uh, and at the beginning of the pandemic, we had dramatic reductions in the number of OR cases and, and that kind of thing. You know, typically our hospital is, is pretty close to full uh, with, with patients all the time. And over the time of, of COVID, there was a significant reduction as we anticipated cases coming in. And then as we saw more and more patients with COVID, the hospital began to fill up again with really a, an unbelievable number of, of patients with COVID-19. It was really quite dramatic and something that I think we all were afraid of, but we were all prepared for, and uh, I think we've we've managed relatively well during this time. You know, in terms of the inpatient side, you know, we've managed to to continue to see all of our people with lung cancer and to to keep the the expansion of the critical care requirements. We were able to meet the demands for all of that. With regard to outpatient, where 
you know, which is what most of our patients experience in their care and what most of the, the docs uh, who are part of ISLC, uh, that's where we mostly take care of our patients. We, we have dramatically shifted to telemedicine. And when I say dramatically, I'll tell you that for a month, over 95% of my visits were done by telemedicine. The institution really ramped up our capabilities for telemedicine during that time so that it really became the expectation that all care, all visits with the doctor would be done by telemedicine. Now, of course, we haven't developed a way to administer chemotherapy by telemedicine, uh, but that was, that's, an, that's where we had a real opportunity that we have a number of regional centers that are part of Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, they're, they're just uh, additional sites of Memorial Sloan Kettering besides our sort of flagship New York City uh, location. We also have Memorial Sloan Kettering sites throughout the suburban region. And uh, many of the patients who would typically come to see me uh, on a Tuesday uh, morning clinic and get their chemo here the same day would talk with me uh, via telemedicine a day or two before and then get their treatment in Long Island or get their treatment in Westchester. And we were able to continue almost all of our patients on chemotherapy during that time. You know, I think there were a handful who were a bit overwhelmed by the, the idea of, of approaching the healthcare environment during that time. But generally, they were generally most of our patients were able to receive care and wanted to continue the care of their cancer. You know, I think as we have begun to, to move through this pandemic and the number of cases has come down, we are transitioning back. But at the same time, many of our patients have, have learned to like uh, telemedicine. And we are trying to incorporate telemedicine into our routine. And uh, I think we're going to be able to work that out. We are continuing to maintain social distancing guidelines in clinics. And so as a consequence, we have a little less space to operate our clinics. And uh, for instance, one of my usual clinic days has been transitioned so that I'm no longer seeing patients in the clinic, but that's my, that's my delicate, dedicated telemedicine day uh, so that um, we can keep the clinic a little bit more open on that day. And uh, you know, I think patients have, have learned to, to run with the technology parts of tele- telemedicine, and it's been, uh, it's been fun to, to be a part of that. I think all the docs listening who do telemedicine know that telemedicine can be very convenient for both the doctor and the patient, but ultimately it won't ever replace what we really, what we usually do in the care of our patients. There's a lot of what we do that has to be in person. And I'm sure that while, while telemedicine will be important going forward, it's going to, it's going to be a, a minority of the care of our patients. It's my ex- expectation. I don't know, Jack, how do, you, how do you feel about that? You've thought a lot about telemedicine before any of us got interested in it. Uh, you've, you've done a lot more than we have. Well, I, I think it's interesting to speculate about what sustained changes there will be. I do think that telemedicine has been long underutilized for its promise, but I also think that it isn't the ideal tool for every job, which I think is coming through in what you're saying. I think it is well-suited for for certain settings when you have patients who have been on targeted therapies a long time and it's essentially a routine visit, a scan review, maybe going over labs, checking in on how they're doing, but they're well aware of, of the, the side effect issues or 
don't have any. I think that's wonderful, but I think for people who are more unstable and who are getting ongoing infusions, I think it is not the ideal uh, tool for that. And so I, I think the utility of telemedicine should give it a place alongside live visits. And like you, I have some live clinic time and now some telemedicine time. And I think that that will continue for a long time. What I don't think we're going to see is uh, uh, an immediate reversion to a time like it was in late 2019 or to early 2020 before COVID where we have no concerns about this. It's, it's going to be a very slow, gradual return to perhaps a new normal. And I think that new normal will allow for the coexistence of live care in the clinic and some telemedicine-based visits. I am in a place where clinic space is a premium. I expect it's not that different for you, even aside from physical distancing around coronavirus risk. But you know, you're in a place where there's very limited real estate and people are cheek and jowl next to each other. So the ability to triage patients spatially has some value, I think, in trying to decide which patients need to be seen locally and which are just as well to uh, be seen via uh, a remote visit, which may be very convenient also for these people who, you know, if they don't need to come into Manhattan, would probably be happy to not do that very often if uh, they can get some some kind of connection with, with you uh, another way. So I think we're going to have to see how this turns out. I, I also think it'll be interesting to see what kind of changes are sustained in terms of how frequently we have people come back for visits, because I suspect you were like we've been, where when you have somebody who was scheduled to come back in four weeks, we could make that six weeks or make that two-month follow-up into three-month follow-up, especially when these were largely not data-driven approaches, but really just the ritual that developed in the absence of, of other patterns. And so I wonder, without really knowing the answer, how much of that more judicious approach is going to be sustained over over time. And we may have more judicious schedules for people, even if they come to the clinic or whether they come into the clinic or for a telemedicine visit, maybe less frequent because we realize people do just as well. And some will like being seen on a on a less frequent cadence, at least as an option for some folks. Yeah, I think that's that's really the key is is thinking about what's right for the patient. And I think we all we all have patients who who like the reassurance of a, a frequent visit and and even an in-person visit. And others who if they could do their doctor visit on their phone uh, while they're at lunch break at work, it would make a dramatic improvement in their life. So it, it is something that we all have to figure out what we think makes the best use of, of our visit time and the best use of the patient's time. And, and I think you're, you're spot on. We just have to figure out what kind of visits those are that are best accommodated with telemedicine. 
Have you changed any of the actual practice patterns in terms of hypofractionating radiation or having more patients initiate induction chemotherapy or other systemic therapy rather than go straight to surgery or do chemo radiation in the in the presence of this threat and trying to reduce the number of visits for the immediate future? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's really interesting. We've talked about it with uh, a lot of my colleagues, and I would say there hasn't been a wholesale change in how we approach this. And and I guess part of the problem was that we, when we started this all, we didn't know how long it was going to last. And I think the optimists among us would have said that we would have we've been we would have changed our practice pattern for. Uh, for four weeks, six weeks, something like that, and then we'd be back into to usual patterns. But of course, it's it's taken a lot longer here. You know, we're we're at about ten weeks now since things dramatically changed, and um, we have begun. You know, back to our somewhat usual OR schedules for cancer surgeries, which of course are never elective, um, and so can't be uh, compared to elective procedures. So I don't think we ever made a switch to, as the example given of, of moving to more induction chemotherapy. Of course, we're a, a big induction chemotherapy place to begin with, so uh, we were given a lot of it. And in terms of radiation, I think most of us had the sense that radiation brings you know the multiple visit to the, the healthcare system exposure. So we didn't uh, want to push more people towards radiation either. Uh, so I think we've we've sort of muddled along without a a strategic plan uh, on that front. And, you know, I, I would say that from what I've seen, it, it it's generally been well received by patients because they've wanted to to hold off on a surgery here and there and, and push things back a little bit. And it's sort of, it fit for them. And again, we're trying to balance between trying to take care of business when you have a a known cancer that needs to be treated and you also want to be mindful of potential exposure risks and minimize those. And as you say, you know, there's certainly patients out there who are more than happy to minimize their, their visits when, when it makes sense. I just wonder if, uh, you know, a few years ago, Dr. Bash had done work that was really through Memorial and some of its satellites that showed that enhancing communication through this web-based system led to better outcomes, uh, including a a median overall survival benefit benefit of five months, just from enhancing communication uh, that translated to people being on treatment longer. And that really hasn't been implemented as widely as we'd hope years later. But my concern is that the coronavirus scare and legitimate wariness may lead to the opposite effect where people are sitting at home, not going in for visits and having worse communication that could lead to people not being able to have their treatments optimized and may give up on it too early, things like that. And I don't know if you've seen any hints of that uh, or if you've had patients who you have trouble talking into coming in I'm just interested in your thoughts there. I hope it doesn't translate to this, but I am concerned that there's going to be a tide coming in after it rolled out and it's going to look worse. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that I can think of examples where, uh, where I definitely feel like whether the patient's fear or they were so sick to begin with that they, they didn't come in quite as frequently as I know they would have before the pandemic. And, you know, I'm, I don't go into this with some pride that I could have changed the ultimate outcome for many of the patients, but I know that some of them, there was a lot more uncertainty as we dealt with things uh, than there otherwise would have been. And you can you just imagine the patient who would have called up four months ago and, and told you about cough and shortness of breath, and you would have had them, you know, either come to an ER or get an urgent scan right away. And, and instead, we have elected to oftentimes monitor those people just a little bit longer. And, and then the patient decides they don't want to go to the hospital because there's all these people with COVID there. And, and, and it leads to a, a lot of choices and a lot of weighing of, of pros and cons that, that we never had to do four months ago. And I think that's, that's the hard thing. And, and, you know, certainly there's going to be a lot of after the fact analyses to, to look at this. Um, but I do think um, the one, one really important message that I think all of us know intuitively is that the cancer problem that we deal with patients with, with non-small cell lung cancer, pa- patients with small cell lung cancer, patients with thymic carcinoma, patients with mesothelioma, these patients have very serious cancers. And, you know, New York got hit uh, with this problem more than any place else in the United States. And we have a, you know, large group of people with thoracic malignancies here. And I can tell you, we've looked at the data and over this, um, the peak of the the coronavirus pandemic, more people died of lung cancer than coronavirus by far in in our group of patients, our panel of patients. So you know, many people developed coronavirus or uh, contracted contro- coronavirus. Many people got very sick with coronavirus, uh, but the cause of death for more people during this time has been lung cancer. And so you know, I think it's it's important to recognize that that's the real problem. And there's lots of potential problems that we have to weigh the risks and benefits around uh, approaching. But but the real problem we're dealing with is cancer. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective to have. And, and I try to remind myself and patients that we really should prioritize the problem, the disease that you have over the potential issues that could emerge in the future, maybe. And that, as you say, lung cancer and other thoracic malignancies are, in most cases, quite a significant threat that needs to be treated as such and not have punches pulled with suboptimal treatment uh, out of consideration for a possible risk of of an issue that uh, is not an imminent issue, an imminent threat necessarily for this particular person right now. So let me turn to a different issue, and that is targeted therapies. You spend an enormous amount of your time thinking about this and have uh, moved the field forward. And at, at Memorial, you guys also have identified many emerging targets that are in the process of becoming integrated as new standards of care. Now, a few weeks ago, I was thinking about talking to you about whether we could really consider the data on a target like MET being sufficient to change a standard of care if we don't have 
a targeted therapy for MET exon 14 mutations available to the broader public. Fortunately, that problem was solved and we got a very recent approval for MET positive. And we also have a new therapy for patients with retfusion positive lung cancer. But of course, these are only going to be available for patients who are tested and have these targets identified. And unfortunately, that remains a significant bottleneck. There was just published in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology a survey called the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, or ISLC, Global Survey on Molecular Testing in Lung Cancer. And it shows what I think many of us have observed and the limited real-world data have also shown, which is that despite the ever more compelling data supporting broad NGS testing for multiple targets, as we now have seven, eight, and, and more actionable targets with agents to go with them, the rates of testing are far lower than we would expect or hope. And the actual execution of having results lead to the optimal treatment are also regrettably lower than we would hope as the reward for doing this testing. And there's all sorts of challenges and shortcomings here. There's inadequate tissue available. There's the cost of testing as a concern, slower turnaround time than we would like. There's difficulties with getting the results back to the clinicians who are making decisions and having these clinicians be able to interpret the results and getting the the treatments to the patients when there is something. So I'd love to get your sense working in a place that is really a temple of targeted therapies of what you see as the challenges of having this concept be executed broadly in the rank and file general oncology community in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world, because this is a global study. And unfortunately, the patterns of relatively poor execution of testing and delivery of drugs has been more the global rule than the exception. So a lot, lot of thoughts to process here. Can I get your general impressions on all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think the with with patients with lung cancer we've we've had this slow accretion of targets that we have to test for you know 10 years ago 15 years ago it was just EGFR and and uh, people didn't really believe in testing for EGFR until after the results of IPAS were presented uh, so we we've had to slowly sort of add on one every year or two, and, and as you mentioned, a little bit faster pace lately, uh, new targets that we have to test for. And I think that's in some ways part of the problem where we've had a, a time where people could develop habits that made sense when when they started doing things. But if you would have asked anybody 10 years ago, if you had to test for seven different things, would you do it sequentially or in parallel? And I, I, nobody would say sequentially makes a lot of sense. Um, they would they would just laugh at you. And and now but now we are there. And I think people need to come to this with a 
a little bit more open mind about approaches. But I have to also acknowledge that the technology is is limiting us in a lot of ways. You know, as as, as you alluded to, you know, we want to be able to get the answers that we need in a timely fashion with the material we have. And then, and maybe if you were, if you cared about uh, health economics, you might say for a, for a low price. But I'm going to set aside cost for a moment because I, I have to say that of the things that I order, the things that I, you know, use my pen or my computer to request every day, you know, on in the course of an average patient, the cost of that sequencing is a tiny fraction of the price of most of the drugs that we use, tiny fraction of much of the imaging that we do. So I, I, I want to get away from thinking about cost. But, but the other factors of, of tissue, of uh, time, and of comprehensiveness are really, really big challenges. And, you know, I can't honestly call you up, Jack, and say, oh, you know, you got to send off uh, the test from company XYZ. They're going to get you the results within seven days, and they're going to give you a comprehensive result that you know how to interpret at the end of that in seven days, because there's nobody out there that can promise that. And we really do need to push this field forward to improve on this, because we've made an unbelievable amount of progress in the last 20 years in, in doing tumor genetics, but it just hasn't gotten quite to the point that we, we need it to be yet. So, you know, you're left with knowing that you have this broad range of things you have to identify, but knowing that you want answers quickly. And unfortunately, I think we have to, we have to develop systems that, that get us answers quickly and comprehensively, acknowledging that the quick ones might be the more common ones and the comprehensive ones might be the, the later ones. And so, you know, the way I think about this is that I, if, I, if I'm designing a system today and knowing I can't have everything I want, at least I should know upfront whether somebody has EGFR or ALK, uh, I should know that within a few days of their diagnosis. If I don't know that within a few days of diagnosis, then I feel like I'm, I'm really um, missing people and I need to be able to um, fig- figure out how to do that part because that is the big chunk of the pie. But, yeah, well, I was going to ask, you know, w- one challenge of the approval for capmatinib for MedEx on 14 positive and selpercatinib for Redfusions is that that has, I think, converted anybody who should have ever had any doubt about NGS that this is a very appropriate approach uh, to to do the bundle. But if you're doing that, I would say it's it's harder to argue in favor of also doing a la carte tests that you get back quickly. And so, I I just think it's it is an issue of turnaround time and certainly availability of tissue to do this that that you need to have you need to have in place uh to to make this more universally usable because I, I i think that whether that is with liquid testing becoming much more prevalent and the advantage also being that you can get that uh, back sooner but i think these are some of the issues we really need to grapple with we we can't just have it be something that you you work in a place where the the system is geared in your favor. We have to we have to make it so that the benefits of precision medicine are available 
in a system that's also available to everybody. Couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think this is, like I alluded to, this is the idea that, that the technology is out there. We just haven't gotten there yet with the available testing providers and the available testing platforms. And, you know, I think, I think there's a, an innovation to be made. And, and I think, you know, plasma testing is a great example of where, in truth, the, the testing that they do on plasma takes about the same amount of time as the testing uh, most NGS takes. But with NGS on tumor, the big hurdle that we have to jump over is getting those slides out of the pathology department, out the door to the NGS tester. Whereas with a blood test, you just drop it in the mail the next day or the, the same day. And so there, there are some of these things that are easy logistic or they're not easy. There are logistical hurdles that are not amenable to technological fixes, uh, but that there are other components of it that are amenable to technological fixes. What about the issue of interpretation? I, I, I see this as a growing issue, especially as many of the companies are competing based on how much they find and you get a report back that is just incredibly difficult to understand and doesn't say, this is an actionable, you know, this is a driver mutation, you, you must follow on this. But you can have that as you know, some random letter and number combination that is buried as number 11 out of 20 different mutations. And for whatever reason, we do see that Patients have some of these mutations detected, but not acted upon. And it may even be that uh, some of it is that the result gets scanned back to the pathology department uh, through a fax and then gets uploaded to the media tab on Epic, never to be seen by human eyes again. But, uh, you know, I wonder, I, I just wonder if we need to have a separate specialty of molecular pathologists or some other group who are like neuroradiologists where we don't expect to have the images sent to a clinical oncologist for a brain MRI and say, good luck with this. You need to have it interpreted by specialists who eat, sleep, live, and breathe this. And I just wonder if we should have in five or eight or 10 years, a separate specialty of people who do the service of divining what practical information should come out of these reports. I think you've really identified an important challenge we have. And and part of it's been worsened by the the testing companies. Uh, The the testing companies want to emphasize the value of the product. And so they provide a large volume of information with the idea that more has to be better. When in fact, you know, maybe it's okay to say that these results are meaningless and you can't act on them. And that would truly be helpful for many folks. And then the, the ones that are important, the ones that we should act on, the ones that there's strong data to say we can act on, that should be very clear uh, in these reports. And I, th- I think you're, you're onto something in terms of having people who can do this. And I think, you know, oftentimes at this point in the conversation, it devolves to, so we've developed a molecular tumor board that can go through all of these cases at our institution. But that's, that becomes very impractical when you think about the 
number of patients in the world, the number of molecular tumor boards that are out there, and the number of times this needs to be addressed. So having a group of people who think about this, both from a diagnostic perspective and understanding the, the performance characteristics of an assay, uh, but also understanding where we are in the literature, knowing about the biological significance of a given molecular alteration and the therapeutic uh, sensitivity of that alteration. That'd be a, a really key thing, I think, for, for folks to understand. I mean, I think the deep question that we have to think about, is this a, a molecular pathologist or is this a molecular oncologist? And is which side of the fence does it come from? Mm-hmm. I, I, one other thing that I wonder about, and I know that your institution has been one of the sites working on Watson. I, I actually think that artificial intelligence could have a killer app here if there's a way to, to develop it so that, uh, so that you could use this and make it mass implementable to people so that that might be another source. I'm just obviously thinking out loud, but I, I just think we need to solve this issue and not just put an 80, 90 page report in the lap of an oncologist and say, good luck with that. Figure out which of these 20 pieces of you know random information might be clinically useful or not. Yeah, and I, I guess I, I wonder, is, is, it, is it artificial intelligence or is it, is it easier than that? And, and I think on some days, I think it's easier than that. And on other days, I think it's pretty doggone hard. Uh, so probably, probably have to have the, uh, the artificial intelligence help us sort out which is which. Well, one of the other ideas that Jeff Oxnard, uh, Jennifer King, and I wrote about, uh, and this was in a viewpoint in JAMA Oncology last year, was the concept of having a cover page for each report that was really meant to be extremely simple, just with a box with a highlight for any driver mutations with a targeted therapy that represents a standard of care that cannot be missed. And then, you know, perhaps a different yellow box for the data that are the table in the NCCN guidelines with phase two support, but not a clear standard of care, compelling, but an option, not a mandate. And then to filter off all the other things that are just onco junk that uh, are, are really the things you have to sift through in the dumpster that comes to you when you're looking for a diamond in there. And you know, I think that you you point out, and I think it's a really valuable issue, that we need to be able to convey the message that many and arguably most patients will not have a driver mutation that compels a new treatment approach, at least as a first-line treatment. And that's okay, that it's not something where if you just stare hard enough at this page, you're going to find something that leads you to a pill-based therapy, that that in many cases, the answer is there just isn't one, but you looked and that's good. It's a, there is such a thing as a relevant negative result in molecular testing. And the other concept of this cover page was it's meant to be shareable with the patient for two reasons. One, just to ensure that it is simple enough that everybody can understand it, that it is understandable to every oncologist and understandable even to the patient. And second, to create this this culture of expectation that someone's going to go over this with you to make sure that it doesn't get missed, doesn't get uploaded into Epic and lost when there is actually a ret fusion, but nobody knew about it 
until too late. And so, you know, this is just a, a concept right now, but I would really love to have these diagnostics companies dedicate more intention, more effort to coming up with the best way to translate the data into action rather than just shock and awe of how complex the test is. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that proposal of a single cover page that has enough information and enough guidance that both practicing doc and patient can read it and know what to do today and in the future, I think that's, um, that's ideal. Great. Well, I'm glad we've solved all these issues. Uh, so <laughs> mission accomplished. And uh, well, I, I think that this is just something that I look forward to, to addressing some of these problems. Obviously, you know, you and colleagues like uh, Dr. Drillon and, and various others in the country are, are really accelerating the pace of all these new options, but we just need to make sure that we are keeping up on some of these other issues that are, are going to limit our ability to, to uh, get these amazing new treatments out to patients. But as always, it's, it's great talking to you, Greg, and I look forward to continuing the conversations, maybe someday at an actual meeting together again, but in the meantime, we'll have to settle for virtually for a while. We, we can certainly hope for it. Glad to have had a chance to talk. And I hope your family is safe. I hope you're doing well. We're all good here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.islc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.